Philippians chapter 3, uh, the third chapter of Philippians, and we'll be looking at the first 10 verses, verse 1 to verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 10. Um, before I read the text, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for bringing us uh, here. We thank you for the time that we've had to sing praises to your name. And we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would edify us, that you would rebuke us, that you'd call us to a life of holiness and a life that glorifies you and honors you in all things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have risen for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has risen for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Garabo taught on false teachers, and I thought it would be best to continue from that theme, and today I want to talk about authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. Now, when, when we go to the doctor, there's, there's certain checks that we can do to see if this doctor is authentic. Uh, well, first, we, we can check the doctor's credentials and see uh, if they, they really attended medical school and see if they've got their certificate there on the wall. And second, it's, it's an experiential test. So you can see if the doctor is legitimate, if the doctor is authentic when they give you a correct diagnosis, right? You go, you go to the doctor and they check your, your blood pressure and they check your temperature and they, all, they do all these other tests. And at the end of the assessment, they give you what uh, 
the, in the medical term, they call a diagnosis, a diagnosis. And second, the doctor gives you a prescription. They give you a prescription, they tell you what is, what is going to fix the illness that you have. They give you the medication that will assist, that will help you with your illness. And thirdly, there's the effect of the medication. So when uh, after a few days you've taken, you've finished that course of antibiotics, or you've finished the medication that they've given you in the duration that you had to finish, uh, after you've applied every uh, advice that the doctor gave, and then you are healed or your illness is gone, then you can look back experientially and say, that was an authentic doctor. Because the doctor gave a correct diagnosis, they gave a correct prescription, and, they, and, and I have experienced the effect of that correct diagnosis and prescription in me being healed in my illness. And so this morning, as we look at this question of what is authentic Christianity, I want to follow that medical guide as we assess what is authentic Christianity. And I want to bring before you this morning that authentic Christianity can be seen, it can be identified by giving a correct diagnosis. And second, authentic Christianity can be identified by seeing what it gives as the prescription. And finally, authentic Christianity can be seen by the effect that it has on the people. Now, Let's begin with the diagnosis of authentic Christianity. What is wrong with the world? Many religions give different ideas, give different responses to what is wrong with the world. Many people give their own opinions of what is the problem with the world. Other people say the problem with the world is that all these countries are fighting with each other and we need world peace. Other people say the problem with the world is that a lot of people are uneducated and we need to put more schools, we need to put more universities to teach people. Some say what is wrong with the world is that people are not nice enough and we need to teach people to be nicer. Authentic Christianity gives a diagnosis of what is wrong with the world. And let's turn our attention to the third verse of chapter 3. We see here the Apostle Paul, as he responds to these false teachers, as he responds to these false teachers, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What the Apostle Paul is doing here, he is zooming in on the main purpose of human existence. People have been created to worship God. We have been created to worship God and to enjoy God forever. As the Catechism puts it, that man's chief end is to worship God and enjoy him forever. We are created to worship God. We are created to honor God in all that we do. We are created to put God at the center of everything that we do. And authentic Christianity says the diagnosis the problem with the world is that people are sinners. And because they are sinners, they do not worship God properly as he should be worshipped. And they cannot worship God as he should be worshipped 
because they're sinners. So the Christian diagnosis says the problem with the world is not that these countries are fighting with each other. The problem with the world is not poverty. The problem with the world is not lack of education. The problem with the world is not that people are not nice. But the problem with the world is that man has been created to worship God. And because he's a sinner, he does not worship God and he cannot worship God. The Bible tells us four things about God as it pertains to God's holiness. The Bible tells us that God is holy, that God is righteous. We know in Isaiah chapter 6 and in the third verse there, the angels shout to each other that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy and God, uh, uh, God's holiness touches on everything that is God touches on all the other characteristics, all the other attributes of who God is. So God exudes holiness. God is holy. It is who God is. And second, we are told in the Bible that God requires holiness. God requires righteousness. And third, God made people to worship him in righteousness. Fourth, People are sinners, and they cannot worship God in righteousness. And this is the diagnosis of the Christian faith. And when any other person comes and say that they are a Christian, or they say that they are, they, they, they are uh, proponents of the Christian faith, you need to take them through this test. What is the problem with the world? And the Apostle Paul puts it there when he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He says we worship properly. We worship in the way that God requires. The Apostle Paul, what he does here, he shows that worship is the center of what everyone does. He doesn't say there's people who worship and those who don't worship. Well, he is clear on the fact that everyone is a worshiper. And the question is, do you worship by the Spirit of God? Do you worship the right God and do you worship him in the right way? Are you qualified to worship God? And that's the diagnosis, brethren. God is righteous. God exudes righteousness. God expects righteousness. Human beings are not righteous. And since God is holy... One of the Puritans puts it this way. He says, the hands of God are the power of God. His bowels are his mercy. His eyes are his omnipresence. And the beauty of God is his holiness. And because God is eternally holy, God cannot look at unholiness. God cannot look at unrighteousness. It says that in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 3, God does not look at unrighteousness and God cannot tolerate unrighteousness. And by virtue of who God is, he has to act swiftly against unrighteousness. God is a God of wrath against those who are unrighteous. And so it brings us to the next point, the prescription. The Christian diagnosis is that man is a sinner. Man does not worship God. And the prescription, as we find it, as we go, look at verse 3 as it continues. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and 
glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The prescription of the Christian faith is that since God is righteous and since God expects righteousness and since man cannot approach God because he's unrighteous, God provides righteousness. This is also called justification by faith or sola fide, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul here zooms in onto how God provides this righteousness. Look here, he says, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now turn down to verse, uh, verse uh, 9 and see, it says, Let's start it from, from verse 8. It says, And indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus from God that depends on faith. We lack righteousness. And we cannot worship God because of our lack of righteousness. But God provides righteousness through Christ Jesus. This is found through Christ Jesus. We are justified uh, by the work of Christ Jesus. Now, justification means that it is an act of God. That he, he, graciously, he graciously uh, counts sinners as righteous. He declares them as righteous by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it is when God says to a sinner, not guilty, there is justification. And how does that happen? It is done through the work of Jesus Christ. It is a substitutionary work. It is done on behalf of us. Now, false teachings say that salvation is within. And the problem is out there. But true Christianity says the problem is within and salvation is outside of us. It is in Christ Jesus alone. Brethren, when it says we glory in Christ, it, it says we boast in Christ. It says we find our only confidence in Christ. It says it is in Christ alone that we can receive this prescription that works. It is in Christ alone that we can find the antidote that will help us to come to this original plan that God made that man would worship God. It is in Christ alone that man is restored to a proper worship of God. It is in Christ alone that man can be brought in a proper relationship with God. We glory in Christ and we boast in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. Romans 3.10, as, as, as though one would argue against this, it says there's no one who is righteous. No, not one. There's no one who is just. No, not one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. But we receive this righteousness by our faith in Christ Jesus, in the work that Christ has done. Now, false teachers say that salvation can be found by external religious observances. Now, look at verse 3. 
turn to, to verse uh, 4 and see the emptiness of the options that are given by false teachers. And the idea that comes from verse 4 really begins from verse 2. It says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is external religious observances. Someone who says, I can be justified or I can be accepted by God by observing external religious things. Look at verse 4. It says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has more, he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. False teachings will emphasize that people can be saved by external religious observances. And the Apostle Paul, he comes here to show the emptiness of these things. Other people think that salvation can be found by your, uh, your family ties or, or your, your nationality, your birth, or your, uh, your links that you have with your family. Uh, like someone saying, you know, my father was a pastor, or my, my grandfather was a pastor, and therefore God really will accept me because of that. The Apostle Paul tends to that, and he shows the emptiness of that. Look there in verse 5. He says, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is the Apostle Paul trying to do there? He's showing that in the past, he used to glory in his links with the Hebrew people. He used to glory in his, in, in his, uh, 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 in his birth, in where he comes from, in his traditions. He used to glory in that he can trace uh, his lineage down to the tribe of Benjamin. He used to boast in the fact that he does not come from a mixed family where some were Hebrews and some were Gentiles, but he says he's an original Hebrew. He's basing his salvation on other people. He's basing his salvation by his nationality, by his birth, by his family ties. But the true Christian pres prescription, the true Christian faith says salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It's not in external religious observances. It's not in your nationality or your birth. But it's in Christ alone. Well, other people base their salvation on zeal or sincerity. Look there in verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Well, let's, before we look at zeal and sincerity, let's look at moralism. There's people who think that God can accept them because they do good things. Or someone says, oh, do you know how many, how many people I feed with my salary? Do you know, do you know what, what a nice person I am? I mean, come on, if, if, if God is good, I mean, surely that should count for something. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees, they, they, held, uh, they, they held to the law very strictly. So we know that there were two experts, uh, two 
primarily two experts of the law. When the, as the Bible tells us in the New Testament, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were more stricter than the Sadducees. Actually, uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. And, and that's why they were so sad, you see. So, <laughs> uh, the, the Sadducees, were, they, they held little, they were, they were not as strict as the Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul says, well, if you want to point to someone who kept to the law very strictly, look at me. I did everything that was required externally. But moralism is not enough. Doing good things is not enough. Salvation cannot be found in what we do. It can be found in what God has done through Christ Jesus. Now, there can be an appeal to zeal. And someone says, okay, I hear you. Maybe, how about zeal? How about sincerity? Look at verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The Apostle Paul says, says here, I was very passionate. I was very zealous. I spoke against anyone who said anything against the Jewish tradition. I didn't even speak against them, but I went as far as killing them. You know, people who argue for sincerity. This, I mean, surely we understand that this person was an atheist. But they were, they, they, this person is an atheist because he was pursuing God and God was not giving him the signs. He was asking God and saying, God, where are you? And God was not giving him sufficient signs. God was not giving him sufficient signals that are required, that the person needed. God was not answering his specific questions. Well, someone says, what about Muslims? You know, I mean, they're, they're passionate. Uh, they pray uh, this number of times a day. Uh, they fast uh, for, for, for a whole month. And they. Have you seen how generous they are? Brethren, the Apostle Paul brings us back here. He says, however sincere you might be in your external works, this is not sufficient for your salvation. This is not enough for your salvation. So as we see there, there are, there are no sufficient alternatives. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Salvation can only be found in Christ alone. We are justified by Christ alone. And this is the prescription of the Christian faith. And, and brethren, if anyone speaks about anything else apart from justification by faith in Christ alone, they're giving a bad prescription. It is like a patient who goes to the doctor and have a very critical illness. And the doctor gives them a bad diagnosis. And the doctor also gives them a bad prescription. Or even worse, it is like a patient who goes to a doctor and the doctor identifies that this person has a critical illness. But instead of giving them the prescription that is required by the cruelty of this doctor, they don't give them the prescription that helps them in their sickness and ultimately leads to their death. 
And this is what is terrible about false teaching. It gives false hope. It gives the wrong prescription. It begins with the wrong diagnosis and consequently gives the wrong prescription and ultimately leads to the death of souls that have been given straw to hold onto when they needed to hold onto what is strong, or when they needed to hold onto an anchor. Now, Paul drives this point home when he gets to verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. By this he means, whatever thing I considered to be sufficient for my salvation, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It means nothing. It is worthless. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, brethren, we have seen the prescription. We have seen the diagnosis that man is a sinner. And because man is a sinner, he does not worship God as God ought to be worshipped. And he cannot worship God as God ought to be worshipped. But because God is gracious, God brings the prescription. He provides a savior sufficient to save the world. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. The true son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, who came in his three offices as the prophet, the priest, and king, as the prophet who comes to awaken us from our ignorance of the things of God, of the word of God, of our sinfulness. He comes as the priest, the perfect high priest, the great high priest. And he takes away the sin of the world. He, he, he stands as a mediator between us and God. And he comes as a king. He triumphs from, from death, uh, he, he, he dies for our sin, and he triumphs from death as a sign that God has accepted his substitutionary work, as, as a sign that God has accepted what he came to do, to take away the sin of the world. And he becomes our king who rules over us. And this is why we trust in Jesus Christ alone, because there is no other sufficient substitute. Now, brethren, since we have seen the diagnosis and the prescription, third, true Christianity has an effect, a lasting effect on people. So if you are truly saved, there has to be a lasting effect of Christianity. Now, you know people who we call as dead orthodox. This is someone who, who is accurate in who Jesus Christ is. This is someone who is accurate in what the problem of the world is. They give the proper diagnosis. Oh, they also know how to give the proper prescription. But the effect is not there. And brethren, I'm contending that authentic Christianity is complete. If you can recite all the creeds of the church, if you can recite uh, uh, all the catechisms, if you can recite all these systematic theologies, and yet your life is not changed, Brethren, I have to warn you that you are not compatible with what the Bible calls to be authentic Christianity. 
authentic Christianity has an effect. Now, what is that effect? Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, the first effect of true Christianity is a changed life. It's a transformation from a life of sin to a life of holiness. The Apostle Paul here talks, he goes into an autobiography of himself. He, he talks about who he was before. He was a persecutor of the church. But now he pursues Christ. He was injurious. He was, uh, he was a blasphemer. But now he's, a, he's an apostle, a proponent of Jesus Christ. He was an opponent, and now he's a proponent. He was one who crucified Christians, but he's one who evangelizes and wants to see more Christians in the world. He was one who boasted in his flesh. He boasted in, what? in his accomplishments. He boasted in what he could do, but now he boasts in Christ alone. And brethren, if you are truly saved, your life has to show change. You have to live a life of holiness. Titus chapter 2 uh, tells us in verse 11 that uh, for the grace of God has appeared to all men and teaches us to say what? No. That, doesn't it? Uh, in, in Second Peter chapter 1 um, verse 3 um, it, it, it tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and what? And godliness. A true Christian can never live in sin perpetually without any repentance. True Christianity shows change. The Apostle Paul talks about his changed life. In Philippians chapter 1, 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is, is gain. This is a man with a changed life. Changed ambitions. Also, the effect of the Christian life is not only a changed life, but it's also holy discontentment. Now, what is that? Holy discontentment is an individual unsatisfaction with your knowledge of God. It is, it is looking at your life and saying, I cannot know a lot about God. I need to know more. I cannot know enough. You, you, you are unsatisfied with your knowledge of God. You are perpetually uh, uh, trying to know more about God. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In verse 10, he says, that I may know him. It is almost as he's contradicting himself. In one verse, he says he knows Christ. In the other one, he says, oh, I want to know him more. And it is this internal unsatisfaction. It is this holy discontentment. He's saying, I cannot know enough of God. I need to know more of God. And perhaps some of you are here and, and, and you, you marvel at why would someone want to know more of who Christ is? 
It is because he has seen in the scriptures the wonders and the glories of who Christ is. He is convinced of the character and the nature and the attributes of who Christ is. This is someone who has seen the true beauty of the gospel. This is someone who has truly seen the mercy of God and the grace of God. This is someone who has truly assessed their situation and acknowledged that God has done a great work that no one else could have done. This is someone who sees Christ, who, who lived a life they could not live and died a life they should have died. This is someone who sees a substitute. This is someone who speaks about Christ and sees Christ as the cleanser. And this is someone who sees Christ as the breaker. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He breaks the chains and he sets the, sin, the, the sinner free. This is someone who sees Christ as the shepherd, the true shepherd who takes his sheep and protects his sheep from the wolves. Someone who sees Christ as the bread of life, that in him we shall not be in hunger. In him we shall always be satisfied. Someone who sees Christ as the light of the world. Christ, the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is only when you see Christ in this way that you can speak like the Apostle Paul and say, oh, that I may know him. That I may know him. This is someone who sees Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Christ alone. No substitute. No alternative. Someone who sees Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, do you know Christ? The Apostle Paul saw Christ in this way. And he had this holy discontentment. He says, I want to know him. I want to know this prophet, this priest, this king. I want to know him because he's the chief theme of the Old Testament. He's the chief theme of the scriptures. In the scriptures, he's prophesied, he's typified, he's incarnate, and he's, he, he comes here and he dies and he's glorified. And he's now at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. And therefore, it is only right that I may know him. This is someone who knows Christ in this way. Listen to what Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, says about Christ. He says, Christ is the most bountiful physician or doctor. Other patients enrich the physician. But here, the physician enriches the patient. Christ elevates all his patients. He does not only cure them, but he crowns them. He does not only raise them from the bed, but he raises them from the dead. He does not only raise them from the dead, but he raises them to heaven. He gives the sick man not only health, but heaven. Do you know this Christ? Do you know him? Now, if you're a believer here, allow me to speak against the nominalism of Christians today. How is your intake of God's word? How is your commitment to the things of God? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, what is your alternative? What is your prescription? Is it sufficient? Are you trusting in your works, in moralism? Now here's the third effect of 
the true Christian life. See there in, in, in verse 10, it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. The third effect of true Christianity is that you become an imitator of Christ. Now, how was Christ in his death? He was humble. Remember chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being, bound, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, in his death, was humble and obedient. Now, how, what, is, what is another way that Christ, uh, another attribute or characteristic that Christ showed in his death? He was joyous. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 2? looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shape. Christ was joyous. And that is why I took my text from verse 1. As the Let me end where the Apostle Paul begins. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. That a, a true Christian has joy and is joyous. Now, what is joy? Joy is, a, is confidence in the character of who God is. And what is the character of God? The, the catechisms uh, put it very well in the, um, the New City Catechism or also the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question two. What is God? Or you can say, what is the character of God? And it puts it this way. God is eternal, God is infinite, God is the creator and sustainer of everything. He is eternal and infinite and unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory, in his wisdom, in his justice, and in his truth. Now when I say joy is confidence in the character of who God is, it is joy in the confidence that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. It is it is. Confidence in the fact that God uh, is, is, is eternal and is infinite. There's nothing that, that was there before him and there will be nothing after him. It is confidence in the fact that God is unchangeable in his power and perfection. That you can trust God in your trials. You can trust God with your problems. You can trust God with everything. It is confidence in the fact that God is unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory. It is confidence in the fact that God is, is unchangeable in his wisdom, in his justice, in his truth. It is confidence in the fact that nothing happens except through his will. Now, is there anything in your life that you perhaps can look at and say, I don't think God was there? Authentic Christianity has hope even for the worst things that might have happened in your life. It gives us joy. We rejoice in God because we know that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. And that he showed so much love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us.
And brethren, this is authentic Christianity. Are you an authentic Christian? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would do your word and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.